When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 74, War Stories, our final episode on the campaigns and wars of King Tutmose III. It has been a long road to ruin for the peoples of Syria and Canaan. Well, it all comes to a head today. Today's episode is brought to you by Roma Shah, David Mace, and Travis Raker. Thank you guys, this one is on you. Today we are covering about 10 years of war and diplomacy in one broad sweep, so there are going to be lots of geographical references. To help you keep your footing, I've attached a map at egyptianhistorypodcast.com. There, I have highlighted the major regions and communities which appear in this episode. It's rudimentary, but it'll give you the lay of the land. Before we begin, let me set the tone with a small flashback. In year 22 of his reign, back around the time of the Megiddo battle, Tutmose commissioned and erected a stela at a place called Armant. Armant, or Iyunumontu, has appeared in our story before. It appeared back in episode 64 as the hometown of a courtier named Senenmut. Senenmut was one of Hatshepsut's most prominent authorities and officials. So, by placing a stealer here, Tutmose was either honouring Senenmut, or asserting his authority in a town that had supported Hatshepsut during the first 22 years of the king's reign. Naturally, Tutmose took this opportunity to describe himself as grandly as possible. On the stela, he put an inscription, an inscription that I think summarises the king's general attitude towards his campaigns and his military personality quite nicely. It begins like this, quote, His majesty made no delay in proceeding to the land of Jahi, or Canaan, to kill the treacherous ones who were in it and to give things to those who were loyal to him. His majesty returned on each occasion when his attack had been effected in valour and victory, so that he caused Egypt to be in the good condition like it was when Ray was its king. End quote. The Armand Stila is a good introduction to today's episode, because I think it sets the tone for what Tutmos was hoping to achieve when he first set out on his long campaigns. When he carved the Stila, he was about 24 years old, maybe slightly older. So when he described himself, it was with all the energy and dynamism of a young man, one flush with power and eagerness. Quote, When the king shoots at a copper target, all wood is splintered like a papyrus reed. His majesty offered an example of this to the temple of Amun. He gave a copper target of three fingers width. When he had shot his arrow at it, his arrow pierced it and stuck out the end to the length of three palms. 
He did this to cause the followers of the king and the gods to pray for the proficiency of his arms in valour and in strength. I, the scribe, am telling you what he did, without deception and lie, in front of his entire army. There is no word of exaggeration herein. End quote. Tutmose boasts of his strength and his victories, sure. But he sets a tone that I think is worth remembering. When this stealer was carved, the king was young and bold. But 13 years later, the world was a different place, and Tutmose was a different man. We resume our story in regnal year 35, approximately 1460 BCE. The king is a different man than he was when he first set out on his campaigns way back in regnal year 22. Things have changed, the world has changed, and Tutmose now has to adjust himself to new circumstances. In year 35, Tutmose and the Egyptian army had suffered a setback. Facing the kingdom of Mitanni in a pitched battle in the middle of Syria, the king and his army had come off not worse, but diffident, stalemated. The power of Egypt was now stretched to its utmost extent. The power of Mitanni was holding steady. The two were thus at equal odds, and neither had a decisive advantage. So when the dust settled on their thunderous clash, the kingdom of the Nile and the kingdom of the Euphrates found themselves in an uneasy quiet. For everyone living through this period, these were tumultuous and dramatic events. A century later, Syrians would look back on the reign of Tutmos and describe it as a period when the Egyptians were utterly supreme. In a letter dating to approximately 1350 BCE, a Syrian prince wrote to the pharaoh of Egypt, describing the reign of Tutmos III as, quote, a time when, at the mere sight of an Egyptian king, the kings of Canaan would flee. That sums it up quite nicely, I think. But after year 35, Tutmose's activities really shifted. He stopped pushing boldly outward, and started looking inward. The pharaoh now began to wind down his conquests, and started looking more towards diplomacy, security, and fortification. In short, he began to consolidate. Now, when the Egyptians looked at Syria, at Canaan, and at the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, what did they see? Well, they saw a sprawling dominion of territories, cities, farmlands, and villages that now gave service to the people of the Nile. With confidence and security, Tutmos and his officials could look at the land of the Near East and say, this is our land. Well, not quite. There were still gaps. There were lands, cities, and communities here and there that were still left out of the Egyptian empire. Some of these were in places where, logically, the Egyptians would be exercising authority, but for whatever reason, they had overlooked them until now. Well, Tutmos took the stalemate of year 35 as an opportunity to correct some of those oversights. There were two important borderlands which Tutmos sought to control after his campaign against the Mitanni. These were the district of Nukashi, and the Syrian lands of Ugarit, Alalak, and Nia. 
We'll tackle Nukashi first. Nukashi was a triangle-shaped district northeast of the Syrian city of Aleppo. It stretched from Aleppo over to the Euphrates River, and southward for about a hundred miles. All up, it was a large stretch of what you might call hinterland, lands that were roughly empty, buffering the region between the Mitanni heartlands around Euphrates and the growing Egyptian territory south of Aleppo. Nukashi was a bit of a no-man's land, in some ways, literally. Nukashi was not a state, it was just an area. The Egyptians called it a district rather than a land, just a vaguely defined region with no particular identity. Why? Well, the people who lived in Nukashi were tribal and didn't have an organized state. This made them hard to rule, there was no single elite to subjugate or cow into submission. This meant that any attempt to conquer Nukashi was bound to be disappointing. The locals were simply too disparate to bring under a solid military rule. In some ways, this suited the Egyptians perfectly. Even if they couldn't rule over Nukashi, they could at least curry favour with the different tribes. Friendly tribes could form a buffer zone between Egyptian territory and that of the Mitanni. Perhaps the Nukashians could even help Egypt by raiding Mitanni territory, or at least impeding their army's easy movement. With a bit of luck, the Nukashians could be quite useful. Tutmose's policies in Nukashi went through two distinct phases. In the first, he tried to compel their submission. He sacked some communities and took away plunder. The nature of the plunder itself, sheep, cattle, and donkeys, should tell you what you need to know about these people. They were pastoral, animal herders. They were not wealthy in gold, but in livestock. So the Egyptians took what they could, but they would find no exotic treasures here. So Tutmose soon turned to a second phase. A couple of years after initially plundering the region, Tutmose returned with a more diplomatic approach. In an attempt to create some kind of political order, Tutmose decided to prop up a local chieftain as a kind of vassal of the Egyptian empire. This Nukashian chieftain was named Takuwa, and Tutmose put him in place as king of the district of Nukashi. This was an interesting move, and Tutmose even doubled down on the novelty factor by making Takawa a rare promise. To secure the region against Mitanni aggression, Tutmose promised Takawa that he would come to the aid of Nukashi should the land be attacked. This is a very rare promise in early Egyptian diplomacy. We hear plenty about foreign lands giving obedience or tribute to Egypt, but it is very rare for the Egyptians to state what they promised in return. According to official doctrine, Egypt took lots and gave very little. So Tutmose's move here is remarkable. The idea, it seems, was to create a political buffer zone between Egyptian-ruled territory and Mitannian Mesopotamia. Without creating a full-on state, Tutmose was clearly trying to incorporate Nukashi into the Egyptian sphere of influence, and strengthen his far-flung borders. So the pharaoh put Takuwa on the throne, quote-unquote, of Nukashi. We don't know anything about Takuwa himself, but evidently Tutmose thought him a suitable candidate. Perhaps the Nukashians were surprised by this. After all, they were a spread-out group of nomads, not a unified people. But then, Tutmose's odd move does seem to have stuck around in their memory. A couple of centuries later, 
A ruler from this part of the world wrote a letter in which he referred to Thutmose III as the father of fathers. In other words, the one who had established the current lineage of power. With Takuwa on the throne of Nukashi, Tatmos now theoretically ruled the lands from the west bank of the Euphrates to the Mediterranean Sea. Or at least he would if Takuwa had actually obeyed his master's authority. Instead, Takuwa rebelled against Tatmos just two years after the Egyptians put him in power. Talk about an ungrateful wretch. We're not sure if Takuwa was encouraged to rebel by the Mitanni. I think it's pretty likely, but it's also quite possible that the nomadic tribes simply resented the idea of foreign rule, and Takuwa, trying to keep his throne, decided to rebel in order to keep the tribes on his side. Either way, Takuwa's crime was obvious. He had broken a ritual pact with the pharaoh of Egypt, he had abandoned his obligations to Horus, and he had openly rebelled. This would not stand. Tutmose's response to Takuwa's rebellion was, as you may expect, immediate and brutal. Tutmose came back to Nakashi as soon as he heard of the rebellion. He led his soldiers into the district and overthrew the power of Takuwa entirely. If there was a major battle, we do not hear about it. What we do know is that Takuwa was defeated and Tutmose took him prisoner. How did Tutmose punish this rebellious king? Well, it's not certain. But a tradition from later on says that the king of Egypt punished Takuwa by, quote, pouring boiling oil all over his head. Ouch. Talk about a crown for a king. This was the end of the Nukashi affair. It is a rare blip in Tutmose's usually exemplary military record. I understand why Tutmose attempted to put a king in charge here, but surely he must have seen that this was a real gamble. The Nukashians were nomads, not accustomed to centralised authority. Trying to force one on them was a bit of a stretch, surely. Anyway, Tutmose's soldiers now ravaged the land of Nukashi once more, and left it at that. From here on out, we hear very little about these people, and for all intents and purposes, they leave our story here. Despite the setback in Nukashi, the years 1460 to 1455, regnal years 35 to 40, still saw a whole host of political victories to balance out that one little failure. In a period of intense activity, Tutmos waged another series of campaigns into the lands of Syria. Now avoiding full-on conflict with the Mitanni, the Egyptians instead focused on some smaller goals, and the gains were absolutely worthwhile. Aside from subduing tribal nomads, Tutmose also worked to fill in the gaps around some important Syrian cities. Three towns in particular stand out. They were Ugarit on the coast of the Mediterranean, Alalak, dominating an important river and several smaller towns, and Nia, a region that offered excellent wildlife for hunting and for resources. Starting in year 36, Tutmose began to increase his influence among these three cities. The first and easiest was centred on the town of Ugarit. Ugarit was an old city, one of the oldest in the world. It was located on the coast of the Mediterranean, and it had a long-standing tradition of wealth and strength in this area. Its fortified walls and gates were formidable barriers to any conqueror, and you can still see these fortifications if you visit the place. The Ugarit's control of trade coming through their port trade to and from Anatolia and the Aegean Sea, made them rich. 
Naturally, Tutmose wanted a piece of that, and sometime after year 36, he sent a battalion of troops to Ugarit. These troops, through some bit of diplomatic dealing, entered the city and set themselves up in a barracks. Pretty soon, Ugarit was under the guardianship of a permanent Egyptian garrison. Just like that, Ugarit was Egyptian, and Tutmose added another card to his diplomatic deck. Taking Ugarit was a great boon. Tutmose and the Egyptians now effectively dominated every city along the coast of Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, and Syria. Mediterranean traders had to go through Egyptian-held cities. With the proper application of tariffs, this would make the Egyptians very, very rich. On top of the wealth, the occupation of Ugarit also decisively swayed the balance of power in Syria over to the Egyptian side. They now controlled most of the major cities, and Tutmose was pretty much unchallenged in the lands west of the Euphrates. The board was now in his favour, and other cities started to notice this. Of course, there were some exceptions, like the town of Kadesh or Aleppo, but overall, people were very much in favour of the Egyptians. In year 39, a diplomatic embassy arrived from a Syrian town called Alalak. Alalak was a minor city east of Ugarit, whose ruling household was technically in service to the kingdom of Mitanni. Well, Tutmose's adventures had forced them to reconsider their options, and in year 39 they acted on the new situation. The king of Alalak, a man named Nik Mepa, sent gifts of silver to the court of the king, and when he did, he made his goodwill known. This was actually a rather dangerous thing for Nick Mepa to do. Alalak was a vassal of the kingdom of Mitanni. Mitanni rulers held sway and dominion over this region, and Nick Mepa's family actually came originally from a different city, but they had been ousted by a Mitanni coup and taken refuge in Alalak. Later, they reformed allegiances with Mitanni, but surely they never forgot what power that kingdom had to enact violent change if someone should defy them. Nevertheless, Nick Mepa disregarded the threat, or decided to risk Mitanni anger in order to appease Egyptian goals. He sent Tutmose his diplomatic gift, and a statement of good intent. Nick Mepa promised, Alalak would not encroach on Egyptian territory or trade, and the two would leave each other be. It was the start of a tentative friendship. I wonder how the Mitanni king took the news. The last of these regions we talk about is the region called Nia. Nia, you may remember, had been the area where Tutmose led a hunting expedition back in year 33. When the Egyptian army made their fabulous crossing of the Euphrates and assaulted the Mitanni heartland, they came past Nia, which sits in central Syria. Then, on their way home, they spent some time in the region hunting elephants, lions, and whatever other game were out and about at the time. Nia was not really a kingdom or anything, just a district with a few small settlements. But Tutmose treated this area quite interestingly. He didn't try to give it a king like Nukashi, and he didn't try to give it a garrison like Ugarit. What did he do? Well, Tutmose just claimed the area for himself. In what may be one of the earliest records of a hunting estate ever, Tutmose took a swathe of Nia and entered it into the royal records as a personal dominion of the king. The land, its animals, and its wealth 
would now belong to the pharaoh and his descendants, housed in perpetuity. They would hunt and exploit the region for their own wealth, as long as their rule here endured. Interestingly, in order to annex this land, Tutmos actually had to take it away from none other than the city of Alalak, who had just sent him gifts. Fearing no retribution, and aware that he held all the cards, Tutmos carved Nia off from the territories dominated by Alalak, and took it over for himself. The effect was twofold. It showed Alalak who was boss in Syria now, and it enriched Tutmos. Finally, it gave him somewhere nice to visit when he was in the region, which, as of regnal year 40, was still pretty much every year. We now come to approximately 1453 BCE, being regnal year 42 of Tutmos III. The king was now riding high on his wave of diplomatic and military supremacy. He had subjugated the towns of Syria almost to their limits, and only a few stubborn holdouts continued to resist him. The main resistor was still, after 20 years, the city of Kadesh. Kadesh, rich, mighty, and fortified, had been causing the Egyptians trouble for decades. It was the prince of Kadesh that had helped instigate the Megiddo rebellion back in year 22, and after decades of fearsome raiding and- For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Conflict, the city still remained strong and stubborn. Tutmos, it seems, had finally reached a point of no return. With the rest of Syria under his rule, or at least deferring to his authority, Kadesh stuck out like a thorn in the paw, and things were only getting worse. The king of Kadesh, name unknown, was such a nuisance that Tutmos's royal inscriptions nearly always refer to him as the vile king of Kadesh. If the Nubians are called savages, the Mitanni called the fallen one, and then the king of Kadesh was truly reprehensible. You can civilize savages, and the Egyptians were trying. You can look down on a fallen one, but a vile one? They're just disgusting. In regnal year 42, word came to the Egyptian court that Kadesh once again had raised the banner of rebellion. What was worse, this rebellion was being supported by troops from the kingdom of Mitanni. The threat was real, the issue could not be ignored. The rebellion, once it began, spread quickly. Soon other areas like Tunip were in rebellion as well. Tunip had submitted to Tutmo's authority in the campaign of year 33, the campaign across the Euphrates. Now, nine years later, they were ready to fight once more. Tunip joined the Kadeshi and the Mitanni, and the lands of southern Syria were now in open rebellion. Tutmos responded quickly. In one of those rare moments where we get a detailed account of events, Tutmos's scribe described the campaign in pretty specific details. It doesn't have the literary flavour of earlier accounts, so it's not quite as readable, 
but it does give us a pretty concise itinerary for how the king went about things. First of all, Tutmos decided to forgo the sailing voyage that he normally took, and instead he marched into Canaan and Syria. This was certainly a longer journey by far, but it was worthwhile. By marching through these regions, Tutmos could impress on local towns the importance of obedience, and remind them that the Egyptians were still strong. Tutmos was trying to nip any thoughts of further rebellion in the bud. The Egyptians probably also gathered up soldiers from the various Canaanite regions. Since so much of the army had been diverted to monument building at home, more on that next episode, Tutmos probably didn't have the kind of numbers in year 42 that he was used to. Against the Mitanni back in 33, he had fielded a good 10,000 men. In year 42, it wouldn't be surprising if he was down to a small force of about two to 3,000 men at best. That's a rough estimate, but it seems more than likely that Tutmos's army was now much diminished from what it had once been. Anyway, Tutmos marched across the Sinai Peninsula and up through Canaan. He visited towns on the way, demanded that they contribute soldiers to bulk out his forces, and collected any tribute that might be necessary for funding his attack. Food, I imagine, was a big demand this time. Tutmos then carried on what the scribes call the road. This was probably a road along the coast, which Tatmos used to advance quickly, and quietly so his enemies would not be aware, to the lands which we now call Lebanon. Tatmos gathered his forces together at a town called Irkata, modern Arka. There he gathered tribute, and then set out eastward, plundering resistant towns along the way. We're not sure why he plundered these towns, perhaps they had also joined the rebellion, or perhaps the king merely wanted to give his army some experience before the real fighting began. Anyway, along the way they plundered two or three towns. Tutmos, in a moment of generosity, handed over all the plunder to his soldiers. Normally the king would take a huge portion of plunder for his treasury, or to give to the temples. This time, Tutmos felt it worthwhile to reward his soldiers materially and give them more incentive to fight harder. Did it work? Well, we'll find out. Tutmos and his warriors came into the lands of Tunip and Kadesh, and immediately began raiding. In the process, they finally came face to face with their true enemy, the Mitanni. The Mitanni had sent warriors to Kadesh to help support the rebellion. Apparently, the king of Kadesh had decided that these warriors would be best served on garrison duty, and he set them up in some small towns in the area. Well, Tutmos was pretty happy to come across them, I can tell you. The Egyptians engaged the Mitanni immediately, and killed 29 of them apparently, before the Mitanni surrendered. This must not have been a very large battle, but Tutmos was still pleased with it, enough to record the numbers in his temple inscriptions anyway. This all reasserted the idea of Egyptian supremacy, and it was probably a valuable boost to his ego after that stalemate against the Mitanni back in 35. Surprisingly, Tutmos let his victory over the Mitanni be the end of the affair for now, and he soon returned to Egyptian territories in Lebanon. In effect, he left Tunip and Kadesh unpunished. Why? Well, it's complicated. Tutmos probably did not have enough men with him, or he would have made at least some kind of attack on Kadesh itself. He certainly didn't have the means of taking the city, but under normal circumstances, he would at least plunder the countryside and try to goad them into open battle, a battle he would probably win. 
But the Kadeshi were being poor sports and locking themselves up in their city. When fighting came, they let the Mitanni do it for them and hoped that Tutmos would bloody his nose on their strong city walls. Either way, the Kadeshi were being a stubborn bunch about this whole rebellion thing. They were openly defying the pharaoh, but they weren't even taking the courage to face him directly in battle. For Tutmos, this would not do. Tutmos returned home and plotted his revenge. That revenge would come. The king just needed a bit more time. Given how important and annoying Kadesh was, it may surprise you to learn that after the rebellion in year 42, Tutmose's royal campaign inscriptions actually go silent on the issue forevermore. In fact, they abruptly go silent on all military campaigning. Not because the king stopped fighting, we know there were a couple more wars at least, but because the royal diaries and annals just end in the middle of things with no conclusion. So from here on out in this story and the rest of this episode, our events come from other sources. Fortunately, even though the king ended his inscriptions and narratives, others were still around to pick up the slack. So the story of the war on Kadesh and the Egyptians' revenge still survives, albeit in a more sensationalist fashion. At this point, I want to hand the narrative over to an Egyptian man who was witness to and participated in these events. He was a warrior under Tutmos III, and he fought in the king's army of retaliation against the Kadeshi people. Let me introduce to you an Egyptian named Amun M. Hab. Amun M. Hab, or Amun in celebration, was a soldier and a lieutenant in the king's officer corps. He lived in Thebes and was buried there, in a tomb which survives today. On the walls of this tomb, Amun M. Hab left an incredibly valuable resource a full biography of his deeds in war, and a set of artistic scenes showing foreigners like Syrians submitting to the power of Thutmose III. The autobiography of Amun M. Hab is one of our best resources for the last campaigns of the king. Unfortunately, Amun M. Hab wasn't exactly logical in the way he composed his autobiography. See, normally an Egyptian, or at least you, would plan out an autobiography in a linear fashion, right? First I did A, then I did B, then I did C, etc, etc. Well, Amun Emhab doesn't do that. He organises his deeds thematically. Instead of giving us a nice chronological record, Amun Emhab groups his chapters together under a bunch of different situations. So there's a section on the prisoners that he captured in war, and a section on the elephants he killed on a hunting trip. Then there's a section of the battles that he fought in, and finally, a section on the trophies he won in war. Amidst all this, there's a section that seems to give us a concise description of a major battle, the battle where Tutmos took his revenge against Kadesh. At some point in the fifth decade of his reign, maybe around regnal year 44 or 45, that's totally a guess, Tutmos prepared for his assault. The king gathered a new army, with more soldiers than before and better prepared, and he set out for Kadesh once more. What followed seems to have been quite dramatic for the participants. Amun M. Hab was part of Tutmose's army on this occasion, and he recorded for us some of its major events. Quote, The soldier Amun M. Hab, justified, says, 
I was most trusted of the sovereign, life, prosperity, health. Devoted to the king of Upper Egypt, steadfast for the king of Lower Egypt. I followed my lord in his footsteps in the northern and southern lands. He loved it when I was at his heels, when he was on the battlefield of his victories, when his strength inspired confidence. End quote. Amun Imhab talks up the king, of course, but I'm kind of intrigued by his last statement. He loved it when I was at his heels, when he was on the battlefield of his victories, when his strength inspired confidence. Amun Imhab outlived Tutmose III. Chances are he was quite a bit younger than the king, and only started to participate in the campaigns, around year, regnal year 33 or so. He makes no mention of Megiddo, so Amun Imhab probably grew up hearing about that battle, but only got to participate in war about 10 years later. So Amun Imhab grows up in the shadow of Tutmose III, and what this results in is a kind of aura of victory around the king that Amun Imhab evokes very specifically. When he refers to Tutmos being on the battlefield of his victories, when his strength inspired confidence, it's almost as if Tutmos had become a bit of a living legend, and Amun Imhab hints at this for us. He speaks of these battlefields as if people knew about the great battles of the day, Megiddo, Kadesh, Euphrates, etc. Kind of like how we know about Fallujah, Normandy, or Stalingrad. Places where dramatic conflicts see our side triumph over some other enemy. Given Tutmose's relentless propaganda about his wars, it seems like Egyptians growing up in his reign perceived their monarch as a veritable Achilles in the living sense, a mighty warrior, unstoppable, in whose company men were always brave and bold. Now, Amun Imhab talks about various campaigns in the past, and I've mentioned them briefly in recent episodes. Let's just focus down on Kadesh. Amun Imhab sort of skips right to the good parts. He cuts out all the boringness. So I'm going to do the same. The Egyptian army came into the lands of Kadesh around regnal year 43 or so, and began, as usual, to plunder them. They took captives, burned orchards or fields if they found them, and carried away any portable wealth. This had been their habit for 20 good years, and chances are nobody was surprised by it. Unfortunately, it hadn't produced anything in the way of tangible results. Kadesh always recovered, and it always continued its resistance. This time, though, Tutmose was going for the gold, and Amun Imhab records it. Quote, Now I witnessed the king's prowess while I was in his entourage. He plundered the district of Kadesh, and I did not stray from his side. I carried off two Marianu charioteers as prisoners of war, so that I might place them before the king. The king, may he live forever, gave me gold of bravery in a public ceremony. He gave me two collars, two golden flies, and four rings. End quote. God, I love this stuff. Amun Imhab is so excitedly proud. He captured prisoners for the king, gave them to Tutmos himself, and then was rewarded in public by the monarch. For a middle-rank soldier, this was a huge deal. I like to imagine Amun Imhab bursting with pride as he polishes his golden flies and hangs them over his chest. The Egyptians were now in the lands of Kadesh, plundering and overthrowing their enemies. Soon, they came before the city itself, and this time, they put it under siege. Kadesh was a well-fortified city, and the Egyptians had never cracked it before. Apparently, this time was different because when Amun Imhab picks up his narrative, 
he describes the king of Kadesh's attempt to fight back. Interestingly, the ruler of Kadesh resorted to a very unorthodox method of attack. Quote, Then the king of Kadesh released a mare, a female horse, and it galloped into the midst of the army. End quote. This is a really strange tactic, but it does actually have a logic. The king of Kadesh was trying to sabotage the Egyptian war horses, which pulled their chariots, by releasing a female into their midst. Presumably, this female was in heat. The idea was to excite the male horses into a frenzy. They would go crazy with lust, and become uncontrollable in their attempts to get at the female. If lucky, the Egyptian chariotry might be entirely neutralized by this little trick of biological warfare. Of course, it didn't work. Springing into action, Amun Hemhab himself provided the violent solution. If you detest violence towards animals, however ancient, I suggest skipping ahead about the next 20 seconds. Quote, The king of Kadesh released a mare, and it galloped into the midst of the army. I ran after her on foot with my sword, and I ripped open her belly with my blade. Thereupon I cut off her tail, and I showed it to his majesty. He gave forth with rejoicing, and the praise filled my soul. A thrill shot through all my limbs. End quote. Okay, so the situation was horrible for the horse, no doubt about that. But Amun Emhab's quick action was clearly a moment of great pride for him. Whether or not the king of Kadesh's strategy would have worked, I've read some scholars who insist that the Egyptian warhorses would have been geldings, or castrated, and so unresponsive to the presence of a mare. The soldier did not necessarily know that. All he knew was that the threat to the chariots, the chariots were all important, he should protect the chariots. And he did. That's a pretty good soldier. Tutmose praised Amun Emhab heartily, and the soldier gives us a cute description of his glee. A thrill shot through all my limbs, he says. You can just imagine him walking around the camp that night, big grin on his face, chest puffed out, and everyone thumping him on the back for his good work. Amun Emhab probably had a pretty happy evening on this occasion. The siege of Kadesh now continued. Outlying garrisons had been overrun, their Mitanni warriors scattered or slain. The enemy city was now up against the might of Tutmose's army. The time had come to begin attempting an assault. Amun Imhab was present at this battle, and he gives us a good sense of what went down. Quote, there was an authorization or command by his majesty. Every elite warrior, including myself, of the army, should proceed to breach the high walls which Kadesh had made. End quote. Amun Imhab's prelude is surprisingly informative. Thanks to the words he uses, scholars have a good idea of a. what the physical walls were probably like, and b. the fact that the Egyptians had an elite battalion within the army, whose job in this case was to lead the most dangerous part of the assault. Amun Imhab describes the wall of Kadesh with a very precise Egyptian word. The word is Sebti, and it tells us that Kadesh's walls ran all around the city and were built on a monumental scale. Sebti is usually used to describe temple walls, and these were large, complete, and monumental. So when Amun Imhab says, we were going to assault the Sebti, we know that this was going to be an intense moment in the fight. Then, the use of the term elite warrior, or kenin, is also interesting. It suggests that there was a special battalion in the army, or at least a group, who represented the cream of the crop, the braves of the Egyptian warriors. 
How they got this position is anyone's guess, but Amun Emhab is so specific here, he doesn't call them Meshau or troops, but Kenan or elite warriors, that he must be talking about a group with a distinct set of honours or identities. Perhaps it was the troops who, at some point, had earned the gold of honour. Amun Emhab and others before him speak of being rewarded with golden amulets for their deeds in battle. Perhaps receiving this gold was a warrior's ticket to a select club within the ranks. You can almost imagine them having their own tent, guarded by a bouncer, where they sit around and enjoy the fruits of their prestige. Kind of an ancient Egyptian in the club, if you will. Anyway, we're missing a bit of background context on the battle itself, but Amun Emhab gives us the final phase, the phase of victory. We don't know how it reached this exact point. This would be a moment when some royal inscriptions would be really helpful, but we don't have them, so I'll have to summarise what might have happened. At some point during the siege, the Egyptians achieved something that they had been attempting for years. They finally, after much effort, managed to make a breach in the mighty walls of Kadesh. Somehow, either by engineering or siege works, they broke a gap in the monumental walls, the Sebti, and finally, the city was open to their assault. In the days before battering rams or catapults, the ancients were limited mostly to ladders and arrows for their attacks on city walls. They would use the bows and arrows to scare away warriors on the top, and then rush forward with ladders to scale the wall. Maybe this is what Amun Emhab refers to, that the Egyptians managed to capture a small section of the wall, and hold it, and then had a point to launch attacks from. But it's unclear. What we do know is that Amun Emhab was in the front ranks when the assault was commanded. Quote, There was an authorization by his majesty. Every elite warrior of the army, including myself, should proceed to breach the high walls which Kadesh had made. I was the one that breached the wall as the foremost of all the elite warriors. No one was ahead of me. End quote. Whether by honesty or boast, Amun Emhab tells us that he was the first into the breach, the head of the assault, the foremost of the king's warriors. With this act, the Egyptian army finally broke into Kadesh. From then on, all bets were off, the city was put to the sack, and the plunder was for the taking. I would imagine that after 20 years of conflict, the Egyptian capture of Kadesh was savage. Interestingly though, Amun Emhab describes it in pretty quiet terms. There's no mention of massacres or destruction. He just sticks to one small act. Quote, I came out of Kadesh, and I brought two Marianu charioteers as prisoners of war. My lord rewarded me for this with every fine thing that the heart could desire. End quote. The capture of Marianu, the general term for elite charioteers, was an impressive feat on the surface. Of course, being in the middle of a fortified city, with narrow streets and no open spaces, chariots were largely useless. But the warriors themselves were still a formidable challenge, probably well armoured and accompanied by retinues of bodyguards. Amun Emhab, capturing two of these prizes, demonstrated great skill in battle, and in the martial atmosphere of the day, this kind of skill was valued above all others. Amun Emhab received praise and reward from King Tutmos. I think we can presume that a great many men received this kind of praise after the victory they had just achieved. Kadesh, thorn in the paw of the pharaoh, had fallen. Southern Syria was now entirely conquered. The Egyptians had finally won the great conflict. 
And so, the Great Kadesh campaign came to its end, and Amun Emhab ends his biography with this accomplishment. The fall of Kadesh was the defining moment of the decade. It tipped the balance of power back in Egypt's favour. With Mitanni's most powerful vassal now fallen to the Egyptian sword, Syria was unquestionably under the authority of Egypt. This was a remarkable achievement. When he first set out on his campaigns, Tutmos III was going up against a patchwork of Syrian cities and towns, most of whom were connected in some way to the Mitanni. Great cities like Kadesh were the bastions of Mitanni diplomatic power, and the king of Mitanni held great sway all across the region. The Egyptians entering the fray were a secondary power at best. Their authority was mostly limited to the coastal regions and to southern Canaan. Sure, they had made some great expeditions before, like Tutmose I marching all the way to the Euphrates. But the sporadic nature of earlier campaigning had meant that the Egyptian power was limited. Tutmose III changed all of that. In the space of just two decades, when he returned home from his last campaign, Tutmose and the Egyptians were overlords of every piece of Syria and Canaan that had once given loyalty to the kingdom of Mitanni. With a few minor exceptions on the far northern borders, towns like Aleppo that were simply too far away, the major communities of Syria were either conquered or subservient. What an incredible achievement. Tutmose never reached a higher point than this. The capture of Kadesh in his fifth decade of power was the utter peak of Egyptian imperial splendour. From this point on, Egypt was in the ascendancy. Other kingdoms were secondary. The people of the Nile were the most powerful kingdom in the world. With the fall of Kadesh, the biography of Amun Emhab comes to its end. And so, our narrative of Tutmose III's campaigns also comes to its end. Unfortunately, I cannot give you a certain date for the fall of Kadesh. It was clearly after regnal year 42, because that is when the royal annals stop, and Tutmose makes no mention of Kadesh in the last inscriptions. So, it must have happened sometime around 43, 44, 45, etc. For the sake of giving us a ballpark, I'm going to say that the actual fall of Kadesh happened in approximately year 45. That's 1450 BCE. A nice round figure. Wholly arbitrary, but it's better than nothing. So, the story of Tutmose's wars. We did it. We finished it. What a ride it's been. Sometimes it seemed like it would be a never-ending litany of successes and triumphs. But there were setbacks aplenty. Whether it was the stalemate resulting from direct pitched battle with the Mitanni, or the diplomatic embarrassment of Tutmose's own puppet king, Takuwa, rebelling against him. I think, on balance, you would call Tutmose's reign a supreme success. The failures, such as they are, never brought him disaster or any risk of total defeat. So the Napoleon of Egypt managed, in some ways, to do better than the actual Napoleon. Over a similarly long period of time, Tutmose waged wars across the limits of his world and suffered no catastrophic defeats like the French Emperor did. Tutmose never had a retreat from Moscow or a battle of the Nile. The Egyptians never lost big like the French. His victories were certainly comparable. Megiddo compares favourably with Austerlitz. The Euphrates campaign clearly outstrips the invasion of Russia. So who's the great Napoleon? I leave it to you. Disclaimer. I actually love the story of Napoleon and his world. The comparison is purely humorous. 
I'm sure you get the joke, but I just don't want any angry emails telling me all the ways I just simplified that issue. Trust me, I know. Anyway, 20 years of campaigning and war now come to their ultimate and victorious end. Tutmos returned home from the Kadesh campaign at the peak of his power and authority. His victory in war was the best recommendation one could hope for. What greater proof of the gods' favour and love than these supreme triumphs? Tutmos, marching home, was utterly secure and confident in his power. Or at least, that's what you'd expect. But as we'll see in the next episode, the fifth decade of Tutmos' reign saw some rather strange political decisions. The king reveals some surprising mindsets and even insecurities. Join us soon for episode 75, in which we explore the last decade of Tutmos' reign. We meet his family, review his art and monuments, and try to get a glimpse at the man, the mind and the heart that was living through these grandiose events. Who was Tutmos III? Let's find out. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.